2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. Verse 20. Verse 20, it says, For all the promises of God in Him are yes, and in Him, amen. How many of the word amen means so be it? So be it. And in Him, amen. To the glory of God through us. And now He, verse 21, Now He who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, is, who, who does it? God. Our good, good Father. Amen? He's our good, good Father. Verse 22, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now, I've heard it said by different authors, and of course, and you can read different people who do different research in the Bible, but they say that there's from Genesis to Revelation, there's over 7,000 promises in the Bible. I don't know about you, but that blows my mind. <laughs> I'm happy to just hang on to Jesus Christ, same yesterday, today, and forever. He will never leave me nor forsake me. I'm good with those. They keep me going. But that's what I want to talk about, the powerful promises of this life as an adventure called every day. You know, everyday life with God is an adventure. And uh, every day is a gift from God. And this is, this is what I believe the gospel or the good news is about. You know, God is love and love itself came to rescue us and restore us and remind us who we already are in Him. I mean, that's what we've been talking about for the last three or four weeks is our identity in Christ. See, I'm, I'm, I'm of the persuasion that nobody backslides. I believe people lose their identity in Christ. They forget the world has a way of causing you to forget when you're not in your Scriptures, when you're not reading your Bible. You have, it has a tendency to pull away your identity of who you are in Christ. And then, it, and then you, can't, you don't remember who you are. But if you start reading your Bible, especially the New Covenant, and you start reading His promises and you're reading His Word, then you start to understand who you are. And so I, I really believe that's what's happening. But we must never domesticate the Gospel but it needs to be, the, I believe the gospel is a wild and crazy thing. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's full of uh, so many things, so much power. It alone has the power to inflame the human heart with love for its Father. I mean, why? And, I, and I'm not saying they're not necessary, but I mean, why do we need healing conferences when we know that the healer lives within us? You know, and the Bible says, as he is, so are we. You know, and, the, and, the, and Christ's work, I mean, in us, and what he did started about us. It's more about, you know, it's not so much about us as it is about Jesus. And boy, Jesus just loves and wants to heal you. But, he, you know, I think in that healing process, he educates us too. At least he did for me. He got me to be smarter in what I ate and how I, you know, took care of myself and what I do with my, with my body, which is his temple. Amen. I, I saw a really, I told my wife, I showed it there last night. On Facebook, somebody said, you know, your body is the temple of God. So the last thing you want it to be is a megachurch. (laughs) 
and, and the picture, there was a picture, and this guy had three pizzas. He's trying to put three pizzas in his mouth at once. And all, not only did he have the three pizzas in his mouth, he had all around him, he had all of these liters of pop, like 20 liters of pop all around him. And, he, and, and, the, and the caption says, God wants me to be his temple, not his megachurch. <laughs> Did you get the picture? <laughs> but when did the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ, I mean, become just merely ornaments on some larger structure which employs stage magic techniques in order to wow a crowd and generate a buzz? I mean, there is one message that we have been called to do, and that is preach the good news. Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's not how to move through walls. It's not how to make lights, do crazy things. It's not about that. You can, you can call me old-fashioned if you want, you know. But I say we stop trying to compete with Sci-Fi Channel, you know, and just start demonstrating God's love. Share, you know, and there's so many places we can do it in the stores, you know, in the, you know, and we go to banks. We can tell somebody, you know, God loves them. You can open a door. You're, you're just you're loving them if you're just opening a door. If you're just being kind to them, helping them with their groceries. There's so many things that we can do, you know, when we're out and about to demonstrate God's love in His kingdom. But these are the powerful promises of His adventure called life, because in Christ, I, I want to just seal this. In Christ, the problem of sin and death is finished. It's finished. In Christ, the problem of alienation and self-imposed, self-imposed separation, it's finished. The problem of distance and delay is done. There's no distance anymore because God is with us. He's in us. He's Emmanuel, which we're going to be celebrating for Christmas. Emmanuel. I mean, your lack of spirit is finished. Your uncleanliness is finished. Your days of bondage and oppression in Christ are finished. Your days of lack and estrangement are finished. Are finished. Your days of hiding in the bushes with Adam because you don't know who you are in Christ, scrambling to cover your nakedness, are finished. Your days of rocking back and forth on your knees, pleading for mercy and begging for scraps from the table are finished because He said He gives us His fullness. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, We are complete in Him. There's nothing that we lack. Amen? Your days of cowering before an image, angry God, are finished. Because how many know God's not mad? He's not even in a bad mood. <laughs> and Jesus wants you to know that you are clean in Christ. You're clean in Him. He cleans you up. And you're close. You're near and dear. You are adopted and included. You are filled and forgiven. And you are part of the family of God. You're His son or daughter. You're His child. You are regal. You are royal. You are righteous. You are redeemed. You are restored. And it's finished forever. And that's just something about grace. I mean, grace is to me is irrational to the people who think too much. I mean, too many people overthink grace. And then they want to know why is grace... You know, what about hyper-grace? Because they're overthinking rather than just believing and trusting in the finished work. It's unfair to the judge. Grace is unfair to the judge. Grace is foolishness to the achiever. And it's a waste to the selfish 
And grace is a mistake to the disciplinarian who thinks you have to do 20 steps to be good. And it's a sham, I believe, to the religionist. But it's a stream of water to the thirsty. And it's a freedom to the imprisoned. And it's life to the dead. Grace is a rest to the tired. Are you tired? Are you, you, and it says that. I, I love the way it says it, in, in, especially in the Message Bible. Let me just thinking of it right now. If I can get there, Matthew 11. I could find that scripture. I love the way um, the Message Bible puts it. Matthew 11. It's here. Oh, there it is. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, it says, Are you tired? I think a lot of the church is tired. Worn out. You know? Burned out on religion. I love uh, Lauren Daigle's one of, on her new CD, uh, Look Up Child. Losing My Religion is one of her songs. I'm losing my religion. I can listen to it over and over. Because I've lost mine. And I'm not going to go find it. And I'm not going back for it. Are you tired, worn out, burned on religion? And then the rest of the verse goes, Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. You'll recover your life. And I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how, he says, watch how I do it. I think, you see, a lot of people think that Jesus is just their example. I believe Jesus is us. If we can identify with Him. I, I believe when I shake Jesus' hand, I'm shaking my hand because He says, I'm coming to show you who you are. You know, He's showing us who we are. And I like the rest of this verse, these two verses here. He says, then learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Learn the, un, I mean, just take that phrase and dwell on it all week. Learn the unforced, unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Grace is another chance to those who have failed. It's hope to the despondent. It's a way out for the lost. It's a new day and a new way for those who can't see the door. They can't see the door. Living is not in careful thought or contemplation. Living is not our reflections or only our revelations. Living does not happen in our lonely rooms. Living is not something we do by ourselves. Living occurs when we're together. When we're sharing with one another. When we're in conversation and interactions with each other. Living is embracing life outside of our careful constructed shelters. Living is our intermingling with the world. Meeting people that you don't even know. Rubbing shoulders with them. Living occurs on the street corners in the coffee shops. Living occurs in the happenstance meetings. I shared with you, I think months ago, when I was at Heinen's and my wife said, you know, my wife has a way of convincing me that when we're out that she has to stop and go shopping. And for me, I know what that means. I will be sitting for a long time. She says, I'm only going to buy one thing. Only one thing means one hour. Okay, we're good on one hour. But as I was sitting there, there's a, a gentleman that works at Heinen's in Rocky River. I told you this story. 
And I saw him come out of the store and he was smoking a cigarette. And I was sitting there reading and, you know, studying and praying and stuff. And, and I just said to the Lord, I said, Lord, that's Dave. And he goes, yep, that's Dave. I said, I'm sitting in the car right here. I'm waiting for my wife. I says, it would be nice if Dave came over to the car and I had some ch a chance to talk to him. Could you bring him to the car? Guess what God did? He brought him to my car. I got to talk to him. Got to tell him how much God loved him. I don't judge him by his behavior. God loves him. He just doesn't know. I mean, they don't know. If they don't know, that's why we're here. We're the messengers. We're the ambassadors for Christ to share the good news with them. And so to live as Christ is to make yourself vulnerable. In making ourselves vulnerable, we allow Christ to live through us as us. Because God needs our voice. He needs our hearts. He needs us to touch people. Because He doesn't touch them. He's the Spirit. But we can touch Him as we, as we allow Him to work through us. Amen? And so we can learn to live God through us. But in Philippians 1.21, it says, For me to live is Christ. And so grace is a weapon of mass destruction. It will overflow everything that is negative. It neutralizes everything contrary to God's nature by being the revelation of that nature. And in Colossians 3.9, it says, The old life was a lie foreign to our original design. And those garments of disguise are thoroughly stripped off us as in Lazarus being raised from the dead. When he came out of the grave, Jesus told the people that were standing around, lose him. He told them. He could have done it. But he told them to participate and lose him and stripped off of us for our understanding of union with Christ and his death and resurrection. We are no longer obliged to live under the identity and the rule of the robes we wore before. Neither are we cheating anyone through false pretensions. The garments an actor would wear define his part in the play, but cannot define him. It's easy to believe when you know you are loved. And what I've learned about Scripture, I love it because it tells you a lot of things. Galatians 5.6 says, Love awakens faith. Love awakens faith. And I believe the greatest cause, and I said this earlier, but I believe the greatest cause of church abuse today is misidentification. You don't know who you are according to what God says about you. And we live in a confused mindset of who we think we are. We think we're, you know, we think we're, a lot of people think, oh, I'm German or, or I'm Scandinavian or I'm Italian or I'm, you know, I'm Polish. But I am a child of God. And when you start getting your new identity in Christ, which the Bible says it's a whole new creation, you have a whole new way of believing and thinking about yourself. And that can change a lot of things in your life if you start believing it. It can change everything. I mean, I just read a book this week. It took me two days to read it. <laughs> but it was a fabulous book about a woman who suffered from bipolar depression all of her life. And she had, and, and then she found Jesus, and she still had it for another 20 years. Because she went into a mixed covenant, a mixed gospel of works and laws and rules and regulations that were coupled with what she was trying to get out of. But when she found grace, she was totally healed. Totally changed, totally transformed. She even went back to her psychiatrist, Dr. Brown, 
and asked him to document her healing. He says, you're not healed. You can't be. It's incurable. Once you're bipolar, depressed, you're like this the rest of your life. It's unchangeable. And she begged him. She begged him to change his thinking. He would not change. He could not believe that she would. It, she, he's kept telling her, it'll come back. It's going to show up again. It'll come back. And you'll be back in the psych ward. And you'll be back under medication and drugs. Well, I had a conversation. After I read this book, I had a conversation with her on Facebook. That's what, I mean, I don't know. You, a lot of people say, I don't like being sick. Well, I love it. I get to talk to authors. I get to talk to authors. And I talked with her, and, I, and she said, I, I said, I want you to come in. I want you to come to our church. Because I want to reach out to our city and all the people who, who, you know, who go to all the different places in the city who are going, you know, who are struggling with, you know what? The church is struggling. They're fighting depression. I want this girl to come and share her heart. She says, and she said, that is why I wrote the book. So I can see other people be healed from what I struggled with for 20, over 20 years. And I said, okay. I said, then you come on in, Nicole. We're going we're to set up a time for you to come and reach out and touch people with the good news. Because she said the grace. She says the grace and the love of God changed her life completely. Because she was told day after day, year after year, all of her life she was told she says, you, they kept telling her, you're a bipolar, depressed person. You're a sick individual. And you're going to be like this the rest of your life. But we'll give you medication to mask. To mask your problem, but it won't ever cure you. But when she found grace, Joseph Prince, Andrew Womack, she even went to college at Andrew Womack's Caris Bible College, got her degree so that she can start to begin to tell others about what God did in her life. So it was, it's a great, great, great story. But when our, the eyes of our hearts are open to what God has done, you know, things will change. And we can, so, we can, live, we can live, you know, in our lives dimly and like clouded with things, or we could see the whole light of the truth of what God wants to show us. Because we can choose our reality by how we think. That's why I keep saying you've got to be careful about your belief system. Because your belief system will either make you better or make you worse. And if you keep believing the lies you know, that you've been told, then you're going to start acting like the lies you've been told. Because something, and, and, and everybody, I don't care who you are, everybody's influenced by something. And then you start believing it, and before you know it, your reality changes. And you start... Thinking differently. Amen? But that's not what God wants for us. He wants us to walk in the Spirit. He wants us to walk free. He wants us to be free from any bondage. Any kind of wrong thinking. He wants us to get rid of it as quickly as we can. Amen? He doesn't want us to be blind. And I want to talk about a little bit about blindness and close today with a couple of thoughts on blindness. Let me see if I could find my place here. I went really off the thing here. 
But I want to I look at how we can face... I mean, a lot of, like Angie even mentioned it in worship about the guys who were on the road to Emmaus. You know, Jesus walked with them for seven miles. Seven miles. And they were as blind as bats. They didn't recognize Jesus. They didn't even know who He was. They just thought He was another stranger. And I think there's a lot of people, even in Jesus' day, remember Jesus who He was, the Son of God. He was God, their Creator. He would stand in front of people face to face and they didn't know who He was. Most of His disciples didn't even know who He was. They struggled with His identity. And, you know, a lot of people would call this blindness. I would call it blind to the obvious. And oblivious to the obvious. Let's go to Acts chapter 9. I'm going to use the Message Bible today. Acts 9. <laughs> this is about a guy named Saul. How many know who Saul was? Yeah, Paul. So Acts chapter 9. Let me see. Where is it? Am I missing it? No. <laughs> you guys, give me a hard time. I'm going to go back to my faithful Bible. The old, reliable, new King James. It's nine. Then Saul's still breathing threats. I must not be in it. Oh, I'm in Mark. I'm in Mark in the message. I'm wondering why I can't find it. I think my glasses are dirty. <laughs> They're on my face. There it is. Okay. Acts 9. Page 1717. All this time, Saul was breathing down the necks of the master's disciple out for the kill. And he went to the chief priest and got arrest warrants to take the meeting places in Damascus so that if, if he found anyone there belonging to the way, whether men or women, he could arrest them and bring them to Jerusalem. And he set off, and when he got to the outskirts of Damascus, he was suddenly dazed by the blinding flash of light. And as he fell to the ground, he heard a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you out to get me? I like that better than the King James. Why are you kicking in against the pricks? I thought, where does that mean? It just doesn't make any sense in my English language. You know? I know what it was referring to, but it's not English. It's not 2018. You know, it's a different, whole different thing. You know, let's move on. Let's move on. <laughs> and he said, who are you, Master? And he says, I am Jesus, the one you're hunting down. 
No, 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 wait a minute now. He's hunting down the people who are in the way. The people who represent Him. But Jesus is talking to Him and telling Him, you are hunting Me. Do you see that identity? Do you see how you and Him are one? You're in union. He sees, that's the way Jesus sees us. Rather than how, how do we, we always see ourselves as we're ourselves. You know, but it's really Jesus. And I want you to get up and enter the city. In the city you'll be told what to do next. And his companions stood there dumbstruck. They could hear the sound, but they couldn't see anyone. A little spooky to me. And while Saul, picking himself up off the ground, found himself, I like, again, I like the message. You know what the message says? Stone blind. He was stoned blind. They had to take him by the hand and lead him to Damascus. And he continued blind for three days. He ate nothing. He drank nothing. And it goes on and on and on, but it's just amazing. So in reading these Scriptures, we find that Saul, who becomes Paul, has a, literally has a head-on collision. This guy has a head-on collision with God on the corner of grace and truth. Which leaves him totally blind for three days. And in those days, if you know anything about those days when he lived, in those days... Opportunities for the blind were very few, not like today in our world, unlike today. There were no jobs for blind people in those days. The sightless were dependent upon the generosity of friends or family or they had one other option. They could stand and beg. They were allowed to beg. And as a man whose whole life had been wrapped up in living according to the law of God, this man saw to be blind for him, it was demoralizing. The blind were prohibited from entering the temple, required to stay outside with the defiled. That's how they looked at the people who were outside. They were the defiled. A little bit of prejudice, you think? Yeah. And Saul, who had been a member of the Sanhedrin as now as, as a now blind man, he would be stripped and disbarred from any position of prestige and relegated to the role of a blind beggar. And Saul was well aware what the Lord Jesus was showing him of his willful blindness to the truth. He knew all too well that his loss of sight was evidence of his clueless rebellion. He was clueless against God, the very God he thought he was doing a favor for. And Paul had no rivals when it came to understanding God, but this illumination of the sun eclipsed all of his previous understandings of God. Let's read about Paul in Philippians. I want to read Philippians to you. Let's pray I get there and don't go back to Mark. Philippians chapter 3. You can tell I haven't used my message Bible much because it doesn't stick. 
doesn't just flop open to the right pages. Heal. Sit. Mark. Philippians 3, chapter, uh, Philippians 3, verse 4. Oh my gosh. Mm -mm. Let's see where I want to start here. I'm going to start in verse 2, I guess. 3 2. Steer clear of the barking dogs. Those religious busybodies all bark and no bite. And they're interested, all they're interested in is appearances. Knife happy circumcisers, I call them. The real believers are the ones the Spirit of God leads to work away at this ministry, filling the air with Christ's praise as we do it. We couldn't carry this off by our own efforts, and we know it, even though we can list what, it may, what may, many may think are impressive credentials. But you know my pedigree, Paul says. You know my pedigree. A legitimate birth, circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite from the elite tribe of Benjamin, a strict and devout adherent to God's law, a fiery defender of the purity of my religion, even to the point of persecuting the church a meticulous observer of everything set down in God's law book. The very credentials that these people are waving around as something special, I'm tearing up and throwing them out in the trash along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Because of Christ. Yes, all things I once thought were so important are gone from my life gone compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand everything that I once thought I had going for me is insignificant dog dung that's what it says dog dung I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by Him. I didn't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. That was Paul's pedigree. <laughs> Fanaticism guards... Egos, egos, not egos, but egos, E-G-O, and blinds us to the beliefs we worship. Somebody best penned the word ego in an acrostic called edging God out. Ego, edging God out. And Paul had come to understand that his ego had done just that. His blindness would last for three days and spiritual blindness is a lot different than physical blindness. But just as much as a disability. When you're physically blind, you're not deceived about your disability. But when you are spiritually blind, you're very, very, very unaware of it. And Saul had been blind to his own blindness about God and Jesus. And what I've found out over the years is that there are many kinds of blindness. How many have ever heard of color blindness? Or face blindness? How about blind spots? 
being blinded by love, love or too much love, being blinded by it. Have you ever heard of change blindness? Change blindness. Change blindness, simply put, is the failure to detect large changes in your environment. See, our minds influence what we see or don't see more than we realize. And since there's no such thing as an unbiased thought, your focus has a way of determining what you miss. For example, even those who had been with Jesus for three and a half years were unable to see who He was even after His resurrection. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. For instance, and as I said that, the guys on the road to Emmaus, they didn't get it. They were with Jesus. Because we too are susceptible to this kind of change blindness. We all are. When we lose a loved one, or when someone we love is distanced from us, we too can become blind to God's obvious presence. Because the circumstance of, of that, that, that moment or that, that relationship can blind us to reality, up to what is real, what is true, what is happening. How many ever seen the movie Shack? In the movie Shack, I know there are a lot of Christians, he did that, it's not a bad movie. You're just blind. The movie Shaq was about Mac. Mac. Who was blinded by the unspeakable loss of his six-year-old daughter who was kidnapped and murdered while he was camping. And by the way, for those who struggle with the movie, the Shaq was never intended to be literal. And the whole Christian world, God's a woman, and she's blasphemous. I said, come on. Get mature. Grow up. But it was written in beautiful, metaphoric, metaphoric language to expose the stereotypes that blind us. In the book of Revelation, John describes Jesus as one having hair like wool, whose eyes are like fire, whose feet are like brass burning in a furnace with seven eyes. John, you're nuts. We can't, we can't have any more relationships with you. Seven eyes. Jesus has seven eyes and seven horns. in your Bible, Revelation 1.14 and Revelation 5.6. In any case, it's important to be postured to perceive God revealing Himself in the ways that may have previously been foreign to us like Paul, Saul. Saul had no idea that when he was taking these people who were in the way that were with that life, Jesus, he had no idea that when he was putting them in prison and persecuting them, he was doing it to Jesus. Which brings me to my final point on blindness in John chapter 9. Go to John chapter 9. I'm almost done. Kids want suckers, I know. <laughs> Mom goes, no. 
No sugar, please. No. Cut them out. Don't even say it. It's not there. John chapter 9, talking about a man who was born blind from birth. Verse 1, his disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned? Who sinned? I mean, right away we have a sin consciousness here. Who sinned? This man or his parents causing him to be blind? This is blind to the obvious. And Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. Did you ever discover how many questions? You know, they say that Jesus was asked hundreds of questions. Hundreds. 300, 180, whatever it was. He only answered three questions. Because none of the questions he was asked had any validity in his life. So he would, when he was asked a question, he would ask them a question. And whenever he would ask them a question, they couldn't say anything. You're looking for someone, look at, look at the message says, you're looking for someone to blame. Whole, the whole world, I mean the whole church, they weren't looking for somebody to blame. There's no such cause and effect here. Look instead for what God can do. Let's look for what God can do rather than look for a fault. The devil's the fault finder. We're not. We're sons and daughters of God. We're looking for the good in people. Amen? And this whole thing, this whole thing in John chapter 9 is centered around a man who is interrogated by the religious leaders of the day and may I say his parents too and they want to know how did you get healed? Because we were told by the priest, you're incurable. You're always going to be blind. It'll never change. And the major question is, was he blind because of his sins? Jesus answered the question again with all of these things. And then the Pharisees asked Jesus a thousand times, are you causing, calling us to be Are you saying we're blind? Yes. Yes. That's why they got silent. He caught them, you know. He said he caught them. And Jesus answers their questions clearly. But verse 39, let's go to Acts. I mean, not Acts, excuse me. Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm just too excited. John 9, 39. John 9, 39, Message Bible says this. Jesus then said, Jesus said this, I came into the world, I came into the world to bring everything into the clear Light of day. Making all the distinctions clear so that those who have never seen will see. And those who have made a great pretense of seeing will be exposed as blind. Whew. You could write a book on that one thing. I mean, these folks, these leaders at this time were truly masters. You know what they're masters of? Missing the point. Missing the point. Masters of missing the point. 
as many today who I believe are missing the point here at Grace Point. Not you, but people. But people. People have missed the point. They don't understand, like I said in the beginning, they don't understand that the point is grace and grace equals Jesus. So we could have named our church instead of Grace Point, we could have named it Jesus Point. But it don't make sense. And so when Jesus encounters the blind man, he doesn't speak to him. You've got to read this account. Read it in your, you know, your favorite version. It's okay. And then read it in the message. And it'll change everything. And, uh, but when Jesus encounters this blind man, he doesn't speak to him. Immediately when he encounters the blind man, he spits. He spits in the dust, the mud. And he makes a mud pie, a spit pie. He didn't even talk to the guy. He didn't say, I'm Jesus. I'm a miracle worker. I pastor a mega church. I'm big. He just went on and did his business. He did his thing. I don't think the blind guy was interested anyway. For some that might seem disgusting, yet in biblical times it was widely accepted belief that there was something medicinal, there was a medicinal property in the saliva of the priest. And now this may be a leap for some, but the saliva dripping off the blind, blind man's eyelids came from the mouth of God. Came from the mouth of the one who spoke the opening verses of Genesis over a planet that was enveloped in darkness. I mean, that's amazing. What's happening here? You'll read that later, John, Genesis 1 and John 1. But think of it as the DNA of all creation that was discharged from the very mouth of God right here. And today, do you know today DNA labs can swab the inside of your mouth and trace your earliest ancestors? And taking all of this into account, it's easy to see see the far-reaching implications of Jesus spitting into the face of a man living in darkness. Because when you're blind, you live in darkness. Living in darkness. And we then can understand not only the condition of the planet, earth shrouded in darkness, but every person before God begins a work of recreating them into a new creation in Christ. See, every person before they receive Christ are shrouded like the planet was in darkness. It says what we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And then when we're born again, awakened to His love, awakened to the good news, I liken it to you know going into my house. We don't have that many. We may have one or two shades and we take the shade, you know, and it's dark, you know, and you can't see out. But when you take that shade and you pull down on it and you let it go, it goes, 
goes all the way to the top, and the light comes blaring in. And we too were shrouded in darkness, alienated from God, not knowing Him. And He overshadowed our chaotic, graceless lives and brought light and life into us. And so 2 Corinthians 5.17 is a good place to put this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And so the church is still singing Amazing Grace. I was blind, but now I see. Being honest with ourselves in our pursuit of the truth, we all have had moments when we realize that we were blind to our own blindness. And so we can all conclude that the way we see things are not necessarily the way things are, but just the way we see or perceive them. And with every passing day, I am discovering that grace does more than restore our sight. It gives us a divine depth perception. It gives us a divine depth perception. And though salvation restores our sight to an extent, however, it is impossible that a spiritual stigmatism can, may remain that blurs the fullness of grace. Can I tell you what? You, we, we, can't, we can't discover it all in our lifetime of the goodness and the grace of God. We, we can't do it here on this planet. And with the Gospels recording 31, Matthew, Mark, and Luke recording 31 healing miracles, that Jesus performed, which are a lot for me, huh? a lot of miracles. Amen? John says, John says in John 21, 25, he says this, there are so many other things that Jesus did. If they were all written down, each of them, one by one, I can't imagine a world big enough to hold such a library of books. But I'm going to tell you something, just so you know, in case you and I get to heaven together, when I get there, I'm going to run to the library in heaven to all the things that Jesus did. And I'm going to spend my first 5,000 days in that library reading everything. I'm going to beat you, John, and to read all about the things that Jesus did. Because Jesus did more on the cross in six hours than anybody's ever done in all of history. The cross changed everything. The truth contained in those 12 letters of three words settled an insurmountable debt of sin that had been occurring, occurring interest for thousands of years. Paying a debt he did not owe for people who owed a debt they could not pay. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. And I love the new rendition. Our chains are gone. Our chains are gone. And one final scripture. And I'll be done. Angie, you want to come? Isaiah 42, verse 16. The Message Bible says, I'll take the hand of those who don't know the way. Who can't see where they're going. I'll be a personal guide to them. Directing them through the unknown country. I'll be right there to show them what the roads, what roads to take. Make sure they don't fall into the ditch. 
These are the things I'll be doing for them, sticking with them, not leaving them for not one minute. I will never leave them. Not one minute. Says the Lord who loves you. Love never fails. I didn't tell her to sing that song, by the way. I didn't pick the worship songs. Had nothing to do with it. And love never dies.